Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha, and welcome back to the Future Accords. My name is Ari Eisenstadt, and today we're joined by a very special guest, Molly Mamarill, who is the engagement lead at the Blue Zones Project here on Oahu. Molly, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Ari. So today we're going to talk about wellness, longevity, community, um, Molly has an amazing uh, keynote from our Earth Day speaker series that you can watch on our KTUH Facebook page. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to diving deep into what you're working on and your vision for the future. Uh, and to uh, to give our, our listeners an idea, what what is the Blue Zones Project for those who have never heard of it before? That is a great question. So Blue Zones Project is a health and wellness initiative inspired to inspired by National Geographic research on longevity, how people can live longer and live better here in Hawaii and across, you know, many communities. Fantastic. Well, can't wait to learn all about that. Uh, but first, let's learn more about you and what your past experiences are. Okay. Uh, wh- where are you from and what was your educational experience to get into this work? So I have had a smattering of different uh, jobs throughout my life, but I was born here in Hawaii. Uh, My parents met when they were students at UH Manoa. And when I was three, we ended up moving to Minnesota because my parents are librarians. They had great job opportunity up there. And I ended up going to the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, studied journalism and environmental studies. But there was always something in the back of my mind that pulled me back to Hawaii. So in 2012, I decided to uproot myself from the Minnesota cold and come back to Honolulu. Um, I enrolled in the University of Hawaii, their master's program in natural resources and environmental management. And that was, I learned so much during that time and um, I'm so grateful that I'm still here seven years later. Amazing. And then you went to work with the state for the Department of Land and Natural Resources. What was that like? Yeah, so when I was in grad school, I was very lucky to um, work as an intern with the DLNR, and I was working with the program that focuses on the region that is now called Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, and it's the islands and atolls and shoals that are northwest of the main Hawaiian islands. So the region where there is, you know, the majority of Hawaiian monk seals, where, you know, all those low atolls are right at sea level. And there's a lot of research, both cultural and um, scientific in the Western sense, where they're learning so much about resiliency, coral reefs, um, indigenous practices by kind of going back in time, but also looking forward to, you know, like what climate change will look like in that, you know, in that region that's so remote and how that can maybe affect us here in Hawaii and in other coastal areas. 
Wow. And that led to the creation of the largest marine reserve in the world. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Um, so the time that I was working there was there was so much going on politically and the federal government under the Obama administration expanded the region um, for like, I think, in perpetuity to preserve it. Wow. You also worked in the nonprofit and private sector, um, first with Kupu. Uh, what, what was that like? Oh, I loved working with Kupu. Um, they are an environmental nonprofit, and they also house the Conservation Corps here in Hawaii. And I was an intern working on greenhouse gas reduction and kind of compiling some data on, you know, what, how much carbon are we emitting across you know, our large source emitters. And so much of this was all new to me. I didn't really know the jargon. Um, and I feel like I'm still learning the jargon. <laughs> but it was contributing data to the Aloha Plus Challenge, specifically the pillar that focuses on um, greenhouse gases. And so I just learned a lot during that time. Amazing. And the Aloha Plus Challenge is an initiative in partnership with the UN, making Hawaii one of the first ever local 2030 hubs for the sustainable development goals. So you're really a part of that pioneering project to work in moving the community to uh, sustainable development. So thank you. <laughs> I hope so. Hopefully that research um, is still useful to everyone. <laughs> Uh, you also worked with Pono Pacific, and this is the for-profit side of, of Kupu, is that correct? Yes, it is. So uh, Kupu and Pono Pacific are essentially like sister organizations, and at Pono Pacific we did contract-based uh, restoration projects. And so it was fun to see two different sides of nonprofit side of how things function and, you know, like, what does fundraising look like? Um, and then there was the for-profit side, which was like contract-based. So I got to see, you know, like how different timelines work in terms of like grants versus a for-profit model. But those skills that I learned in both the nonprofit and private sectors was like, I'm so grateful that I have them now because it serves me more effectively in whatever role that I come into. That's great. So now going to the Blue Zones Project, this is a really interesting organization because you work with all different types of sectors, you work with organizations and on the individual level. Mm -hmm. uh, how did this get started? What's the, what's the history behind the Blue Zones Project? What does a Blue Zone even mean? Oh, okay, those are great questions. So the Blue Zones research started with National Geographic in the early, I think late 90s, early 2000s. And Dan Butner is sort of the the founder of everything. So he was a National Geographic fellow with a special interest in longevity. And he created a team of experts who traveled the world to find these regions where people were living to age 100 at very high rates. And so um, they located five regions, Okinawa, um, a community in Greece, community in Italy, the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, and Loma Linda, California. And those were circled in blue pen on a map and essentially coined blue zones. And so the name ended up sticking even now, nearly 20 years later. And they studied and got to know very well the, the people who lived in these communities, many of whom were 100 years old or older, 
and they observed their lifestyles. You know, what were they eating? How much were they moving every day? How did they relate and connect to other people? And so this fascinating longevity research came out of National Geographic. And, you know, they came home after their travels and they had these sort of like lessons and threads of commonalities that they found across the five blue zones areas. And they said, can we create a blue zone in the United States? And so these small pilot projects started popping up. The first one was in Albert Lee, Minnesota. And since about 2009, 2010, there are now 48 Blue Zones Project communities in 11 different states because it does show um, that these wellness efforts can really make positive change in people's lives. And so you're the engagement lead. What does that mean? And is that focused on a certain area? Yeah. So we are currently sitting in Manoa and the region that I dedicate my time to is coined the 4M. So Manoa, Makiki, Makali, and Mo'ili'ili. It's a mouthful if you say all of them <laughs> at once. <laughs> but that region is an area that applied to have a Blue Zones project team. Uh, they applied to HMSA, um, the insurance company, which is our, our local sponsor in Hawaii. And, you know, a few community leaders came together and they said, you know, we, we want wellness to come to this area. And there's a three-year project and we're here to implement these healthy nudges across the community to help people live longer and live better, to make the healthy choice the easy choice. That's great. So there are three levels to what you focus on. Uh, you say people, places, and policy. Um, who, are, who are the people and, and how, did they, how did they get involved in this work? Yeah, so the, the people side of what we do is when you look at what we call the life radius, it's kind of like the five mile like radius of where you work or live. So for instance, you work here at KTUH. If you were to look five miles in any direction, that's the region that we're essentially trying to transform to help make healthier. So that means wherever you live, where you work, where you play, where you eat, where you study, that there are healthy options available to you and those options are easy and accessible. So people, when it comes to the people aspect, our goal is to reach at least 15% of the population of this region. And that is, um, if you break it down, um, about 10,000 individuals. And they've seen that once you reach about 15% of a community, that positive change can really start to um, take place more readily. It becomes the tipping point for change. And it, it can really become a social norm to have that health, those healthy options be available. Um, so in terms of how can people like get involved as individuals, you can come to our free public events, anything from plant-based cooking classes to joining a walking group to trying out a yoga class. Um, you can sign up your organization or workplace, faith-based group, rotary club, student club to get involved. And we have little, 
you know, things that you can do within those environments. Um, yeah, there are many ways to get involved to kind of make this something that you can bring to your own life. That's great. And so the idea is that these are all free and open to the public and it's sponsored by uh, healthcare organizations and the cost of healthcare goes down uh, and their their expenses go down because of this. Yeah. So the the interesting side is that when you are proactively caring for your health, you don't have these long term chronic illnesses. You hope anyway. And so there is incentive for um, whether it's large scale workplaces or health insurance companies to invest in a project like Blue Zones Project because there are so many positive, I guess, outcomes that come from it, including cost savings. Fantastic. Uh, and then, so the next one is places and focusing on organizations. So what, what does it look like to work with an organization? How can organizations be focused on this wellness and longevity? So for instance, we work with many organizations across this region, everywhere from schools, public and private, to work sites, whether you're a small work site or a large work site, grocery stores, restaurants, faith-based organizations, uh, social clubs like um, Rotary, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Um, and all of these places have specific checklists that they can opt into. So for instance, if a work site signs up they can earn so many points towards becoming a Blue Zones project approved worksite. And if they do certain things within their workspace, you know, that one thing like having healthy options in the break room could maybe be three points. Having ergonomic desks could be four points. Um, having bike racks for employees could be worth so much. And Having a weekly, you know, walking group or a weekly yoga class offered could be worth so much. So if you make all these small changes into a specific setting, then the healthy choice becomes easier for people who spend a lot of time there. And finally, the policy side of working with local governments on creating regulations that support this type of this type of wellness. Uh, how do you do that? Here in Hawaii, we have folks who work specifically with policy. There's three specific areas. There's tobacco policy, which is at the you know county and state level. And those are really focused, at least most recently, on um, youth and you know trying to prevent youth from becoming addicted to tobacco, especially early on in high school with like vaping and so forth. Um, so there's tobacco policy, there's food policy, which aims to get healthier options into, healthier options accessible to people, whether that's through um, various programs like, like food programs like SNAP or working with schools to have healthier options in the cafeteria. That could even look like having more farmers markets in areas that you know, are distant from grocery stores. It's different in all of the 48 communities across the 11 states. And then the third layer of the policy section is uh, the built environment. So supporting efforts that are bike and pedestrian friendly um, and also green spaces. Here in the 4M region, we're working a lot with Old Stadium Park and revitalizing the park. 
it holds a lot of nostalgia for people who remember the stadium being there and lots of community gatherings being there. And having it kind of be the center of Mo'ili'ili, in a sense. And people want that sense back, that sense of community back. And so from our focus groups and many, many community organizations that um, we've partnered with, they all sort of pointed to like Old Stadium Park. This is a place we want to kind of bring back to life. And so that is one of our marquee projects within the built environment. Um, also working with, you know, having more bike lanes available, having um, sidewalks be safer, pedestrian safety is a big, you know, avenue where we can really grow. There's so there's so much to talk about. <laughs> it's it's really fantastic that you can really advocate for these wraparound services and mm-hmm. from this policy to the place based wellness to individual people really taking responsibility of their own longevity. Um, Blue Zones does so much, it really seems like. <laughs> I've learned a lot in this job because it kind of touches so many pockets of, of the Honolulu region. Absolutely. So I'm excited to, to hear your thoughts on the future. And re- really, what can, what can people do to, in their daily lives to make a goal of living longer? And you have a great philosophy on that. I would love to hear your thoughts. When people read the Blue Zones books, uh, Dan Buettner wrote a really wonderful book called The Blue Zones, Nine Lessons for Living Longer. And I always come back to these nine lessons. They are called the Power Nine. And um, I can kind of talk through each one because these are things that you can do every day in your own life or try things on, um, but these are very tangible. So first we have moving naturally. And the Blue Zone centenarians, the 100-year-olds, they weren't running marathons, they weren't lifting weights, they weren't at the gym for one to two hours every day. But they were, you know, doing things by hand, like gardening and making their own food. They were walking everywhere. So they were, on average, moving about every 20 minutes. And so that is fascinating because that is natural movement. They weren't intentionally exercising. So when you look at how does that translate into our daily lives, um, that could mean riding your bike to work. It could mean parking further away from the grocery store. It could mean taking the stairs instead of the elevator. But doing things consistently so that you're always moving frequently um, for those of us who work at desks, maybe having a standing desk, things like that, just add those little healthy nudges into your day. Are, are these in any order of importance? Um, I'm just kind of talking through them as all equal, but I do think the piece, which I'll get to, which, which talks about human connection, is um, very foundational to you know sense of community. But they all collectively can really boost our health, I think. The next one is downshift, and downshifting can be anything that helps you relax. So they found that, you know, when they observed folks who were 100 or, you know, in their late 90s, they were creating space every day to downshift, and that could take many different forms. It could be meditation, journaling, going on a walk prayer, self-reflection, honoring your ancestors. 
And so having that space every day can really help reduce stress levels. And if you do that consistently enough, you'll reduce the likelihood that you'll have chronic stress in your life, which leads to a whole other array of ailments. And so, yeah, be kind to yourself and, you know, give yourself that time to relax every day. Okay, so so we have movement, which is getting your heart rate up and exercising, and then downshifting, which is being able to lower your heart rate and, and relax. I've never thought of it in that way, but yeah, very much so. It's um, just having, I think, time to be active and time to rest. And I think that makes total sense, Perfect. what you said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the third one we have is purpose. And when they asked the Blue Zone centenarians, what, you know, what is your purpose? They had answers. And they were very clear about those answers. In Okinawa specifically, there's um, a word, ikigai, which, you know, translates roughly to mean like, what gets you out of bed each day? What is that motivating factor that makes you excited to, you know, maybe contribute in some way to society? Um, And for everyone in different seasons of life, we have different, a different purpose. And so I ask this question to students a lot and some kids you know I'll say like what gets you excited about waking up every day and some kids say breakfast um others might say playing with my little sister when I ask folks who may be recently retired there's sometimes a moment of hesitation where they're like well you know I have all this free time now I need to redefine my purpose you know if you spent 30 or 40 years in a very meaningful career and now you have all this time. So your purpose can change and being able to define it, whether it's this really big thing, you know, saving the world or simply caring for your garden. It all matters because it's what motivates us individually. That's great. And I see a almost exponential trend generationally of younger people wanting to have a social impact in their day to day lives in what they do for their job. Um, so are we seeing more purpose, would you say? Oh, I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> I think that the idea of knowing our purpose has become more of like a concept that younger generations understand more readily, whereas I think in older generations it was, you know, providing for the family, um, making ends meet, and there's such a strong work ethic tied to like my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation. Um, But when I look at, you know, millennials and those that are much younger, there's this idea like we think about it in like the self, the individual. What can I contribute? What can I give back? And so I do think the concept of purpose has sort of been redefined in a way and I think we I think there's always been purpose. I don't know if it's increased, but the way people define it more readily, at least you know, youth and young adults can really I think state it more more easily than, you know, my parents and my grandparents. That's great. So purpose being able to reach and work beyond yourself and have that dedication and mission in a way to to really dedicating your life to that. Mm-hmm. Founded in your passions and your gifts. Uh, so the next one is your right tribe. 
And that is your group of friends. So people who you spend a lot of time with. And when you think on, you know, your three closest friends, they say that, you know, the common colds, or habits, let me rephrase this, habits are as contagious as the common cold. So, you know, every week you might go to a Zumba class with your your three roommates, or maybe you love going to movies every Friday night and eat lots of popcorn and chocolates with your friends. It's It takes a moment of reflection to think, you know, how are your habits influencing those around you and how are their habits influencing you? So what becomes our social norms can either, you know, be healthy or unhealthy. And it's just, you know, thinking of how you influence those around you as well as their influences on you. So it's not just about having a tribe, but it's having the right tribe that makes the right decisions. Yeah, in a sense. And, you know, who you surround yourself with, you kind of become like them in a way. So, you know, just take that moment to think about how others are affecting you. Um, They've also said that having face-to-face time with people at least six hours a day is so valuable where you're not plugged into a phone or a TV or a computer. But talking and laughing and having that person-to-person connection is really important. So aside from the healthy or unhealthy habits, having that face-to-face time on a foundational level is very valuable. All right, I'll move into Plant Slant. And this is what people associate Blue Zones Project with a lot. It all comes down to food because people love to eat. And so Plant Slant is, um, it came from the observation that most of the centenarians were eating mostly plant-based. About 95% of what they consumed was plants. If they had meat or fish, it was maybe once a week, and the portion was about the size of a deck of cards. And they always, um, what I find really unique is that they knew their food source. So whether they were growing vegetables in their gardens, or you know, if they were fishing or hunting, they, it was from their local community. And so to me, that's a really important piece is that they knew where their food was coming from. And so um, we offer lots of recipes. We have like a whole website focused on recipes inspired by the Blue Zones. Um, I love to talk about Okinawa specifically because there are so many folks here in Hawaii who have ancestors or family members who are from Okinawa or they themselves are from Okinawa. And we love talking about Okinawan sweet potatoes they found that before the 1940s, most of what people were eating was Okinawan sweet potatoes, called the emo. There's also the bitter melon, which is very popular, um, turmeric or olena. Um, so there's all these little things that we still have here in Hawaii because of our proximity to um, Okinawa, Japan. Um, so. I love talking about food. We have a lot of plant-based cooking classes that are free to the community. Um, And if you take away one thing from this particular Power Nine, it's that you don't necessarily have to become vegetarian or vegan, but it's adding more fruits and veggies into your, 
your daily meals. And that sort of by default pushes out the bad things. So just, you know, adding in that extra salad or, you know, that extra banana or fruit um, can push out the things that we we also love to snack on that may not be as healthy. Mm. And so Plant Slant also, in addition to helping your individual health, it also helps the global environmental health uh, being more sustainable and producing less carbon. Yeah, and I think that um, was a finding that came about unexpectedly um, because when you look at, you know, indigenous cultures, they're eating exactly what is from their community. And so meat was more of a rare thing to come by. So it was for special occasions. And that can also be seen in the Blue Zones regions, which themselves are mostly remote places, with the exception of Loma Linda, California. But in Loma Linda, it's, um, there's a very high concentration of Seventh-day Adventists. And by choice, most of them eat plant-based. And so... Um, in the five Blue Zones regions, yeah, they were eating from their local community. It's great. Um, I'll hop into family first. So what they found is that the family unit was very strong in the five Blue Zones regions. And of the centenarians, they typically had one life partner. They grew their family around that person. And there was lots of quality time spent together. Um, they were oftentimes living in multi-generational homes where there were three generations, um, Keiki, parents, and Kupuna, and having, for the Keiki, having their grandparents around added an extra set of eyes to kind of watch over them and care for them and love them, spend time together. And for Kupuna elders, um, having young people around, you know, keeps everybody younger and more active. And so it was really, it's really a win-win. And I think we see multi-generational living um, very much here in Hawaii. And having that very strong family unit is something that's so integral to our local culture here. Um, so I see many parallels. Fascinating. Is, is there, uh, I feel like we also see in Western culture that, uh, that, People move away from intergenerational living, that they want to be on their own. They don't want to look like they're living living with their parents. They want to be independent. Um, how, how can we reconcile those those issues? Oh, that's a, a really wonderful thing to bring up. Um, I think there's also this sense of family responsibility. And, you know, my generation, millennials, yours too, <laughs> we are... Um, you know, we go away from home, but then at some point, there might be that sense of responsibility as, like, the children to care for your aging parents. And I think that comes into play here, too, where they cared for you as a young child, and then we return the favor as they age. And so I think in um, a society where, like, the family unit might be more physically distant that that is one way of making it all come full circles, us caring for our parents and grandparents as they age. Um, and then there's also the idea of like extended family, people, or Hanai family, adopted family, where you spend time with your loved ones. Many people here in Hawaii 
are from faraway places, but they have a family unit here, which is made up of friends or roommates, coworkers, you know, whoever you live with and spend a lot of time with. So that might be a different way of looking at um, kind of like a non-traditional family unit, especially if you're far away from home. So there's the sense of belonging, that's number seven, and they found that many people who were living past 100, like more than 90% of them, had some kind of faith or spiritual life, and they had a values-based community that they spent a lot of time with. And it didn't matter what religion or what kind of belief system these folks subscribed to, but that they had this community who had the same values and they saw each other at least four times a month. So, you know, that comes up, you know, maybe every Sunday at church, something like that. And having that values-based community not only provided a sense of belonging, but could add between four and 14 years onto someone's lifespan. And so this is across any religion or spiritual practice or even a philosophy and way of life. It's just that you have a community to belong to. Um, that's absolutely it. And so there was never like one religion that stood out or one belief system. It was just these people felt that they belonged someplace and they had a community where people were checking in on them like, oh, you know, I didn't see you at the service this past weekend. You know, how are you doing? So having that, um, yeah, built-in friends, I guess. Nice. So two left. Um, number eight is the 80% rule, which is also from Okinawa. And what, what do you think the 80% rule is about? Ooh, I, I couldn't <laughs> venture a guess. Okay, so there's a Confucian adage, um, and it roughly translates to mean eat until you're... 80% full. It's harahachibu. I might not be saying that correctly, but I think that's how it's pronounced. And it's something that Dan Butner observed when he was in Okinawa. You know, the the kupuna would, you know, sit down for a meal and they would kind of like say this very quiet um, harahachibu. And he asked what that meant. And, you know, they say, oh, we only eat until we're 80% full. And if you do this for Every meal for many decades, you maintain a healthy body weight, you don't overeat, um, and it also ties into mindfully eating, where you eat slower, you might chew more, and appreciate the flavors and everything. Um, so I sort of encourage folks to try this at their next meal, or maybe the next week of meals, where you give yourself maybe an extra 20 minutes to see, like, okay, my brain has registered that my stomach is full because it takes about 20 minutes for those two um, systems to um, communicate properly. Um, so yeah, hard to do on the, in the holidays though. <laughs> Very interesting. And then our last power nine. This one is a fan favorite. It's from the Italian Blue Zone and it's called Wine at Five. And um, in this specific region of Italy... They grow um, grapes to make Cannonau wine. And Cannonau wine is very high in antioxidants. And the people in this mountainous region, they tend to be shepherds, um, very remote. And so they drink one or two small glasses each day um, with family and friends, whether it's 
at an evening meal. And that really, you know, has shown to like help their health. And it was always in small amounts. So it's not like they saved up one or two glasses every day for the weekend, um, the way a lot of people do, but they had a very healthy relationship with, with wine. Um, it's Italy, of course. <laughs> and, um, so that's something that maybe if you have a pahana with friends, you know, maybe have a glass of red wine and enjoy it, savor it. Um, but that can also help with like digestion and so forth. So what is the actual name of the, of it's, the power nine category? Uh, wine at five. So, you know, pauhana. So, so it's very specifically <laughs> wine and, and, do, and doing that in a celebratory conscious way. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a meaningful sense where you're in good company, it's sort of like the whole atmosphere around the wine. It's not like, oh, it's five o'clock PM. I'm sitting alone at my desk drinking a glass of wine. It's really, you know, enjoying a glass of wine in a social setting. Um, and Canada wine specifically, it's red, just has this extra boost of antioxidants, which can be, you know, beneficial. Wow. Yeah. So th- there we have it, the Power Nine. Um, I-, I think this is really fascinating, especially on the ninth one, because in the United States, we just had a, a tick down in our life expectancy for the first time in, in I think, about 100 years. And they say that it's due uh, to addictions, to suicides. Uh, and I think it's it, the people are pointing to this lack of connection and the need to compensate for that. Um, so it sounds like, uh, especially all these, but but really number nine, that it's being able to have alcohol to enjoy partying in in a responsible, conscious, community-driven way, rather than a coping mechanism for not having the other things. Would you say that's accurate? I think when you look at Italy as a country and how they really savor their food, um, just kind of being... It's the atmosphere around something. So I think that Italians especially enjoy wine in a responsible way. Um, so yeah, I do, I do see that um, being very true, especially in Europe. And sometimes those things don't always translate to the United States in that um, kind of like cultural norm way where um, in Italy you go there and you're like, wow, these people really, they're savoring life in all senses of the word. Um, but when I think about how you mentioned connection and the value of, you know, people being able to feel like they belong, um, it comes back to some of these power nine where, you know, people have, they want to belong to a community. They want to have friends, have a good relationship with family or Hanai family, um, but also know their sense of purpose. Because if you wake up every day and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, I feel a little bit aimless, it really comes back to the self and like, how can I contribute? How can I do something meaningful? And that might be one reason why we're seeing that drop in longevity because people aren't feeling purposeful. They aren't feeling connected. Um, So, that's kind of my takeaway from that um, statistic that you mentioned. 
At the same time, Hawaii has the longest life expectancy, uh, the the lowest crime, uh, so many great things going for uh, for us here. Uh, and it seems like there's really a a connection to indigenous knowledge and traditional wisdom. Do you see do you see uh, parallels and connections to those two aspects between uh, what has what has been known at this deep uh, indigenous level and and these this new cutting edge research? I think the blue zones. It's really kind of uncovering what a lot of indigenous cultures have always had, and it's just showing that you know, looking back is the best way to look forward. And if you look at these five blue zones regions, Okinawa, Costa Rica, um, remote parts of Greece and Italy, and then even in Loma Linda, California, it may not be as relevant in that, that particular one. But these power nine are all very common sense things that communities usually had before you know, industri the Industrial Revolution, there was always this sense of you knew where your food came from, you knew your neighbors. There was a sense of community resiliency because there were these strong social bonds to each other and to place and that sense of place. And how, I mean, here in Hawaii, I read about what it was like a few hundred years ago, and that was... It's amazing, you know, the Ahupua'a system provided everything from the mountains to the ocean. Um, all the resources were here. And so to me, that is the ultimate blue zone because, you know, that was a resilient community. Um, and so that's kind of drawing parallels back to our sense of place here. I mean, even in Manoa, there were Kalolo'i and now it looks very different. So it's not only connecting to each other, but connecting to place. It's very important. Beautiful. So overall, what is your outlook for the future? Are you hopeful or, or do you think we're, we'll be able to turn things around and everyone can start living to, to 100 and beyond? Or um, do you think that we're past the point of no return and uh, things are going to get worse? Um, I think if I... I mean, I want to be really positive because this is the work that I'm devoting my life to. So wellness and, you know, living a happier life is, you know, what I want for myself too. So I have to have some kind of like silver lining despite all the things that we hear about. But I think it comes down to each person finding their gift or gifts, contributing meaningfully and you know, taking care of themselves and their families. And that's really, like, very basic. Um, but I would be in the wrong job if, you know, I was, you know, feeling like doomsday was just around the corner. I mean, we definitely have a lot to work on with um, social social issues, not only locally but globally. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of work ahead of us, but we just have to keep keep at it. We have a good roadmap for that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so if, if someone wants to get involved, if they want to sign their organization up, if they want to go and and to events as an individual, what's what's the best way to connect with you and with the Blue Zones Project? Sure. So we have a website. Um, you can just Google Blue Zones Project Hawaii and our website will pop up. You'll see the different communities that we work in across the state. So there's eight communities that we work in. We work statewide with work sites. 
So if you um, are interested in signing up your workplace, that's definitely an option. Uh, we have Facebook pages for every community. So, you know, just Google around and you'll find us. Um, and look out for any flyers or Facebook events that you see. You can also sign up to be on our email list to hear about any upcoming events. Amazing. Well, Molly, thank you so much. It was such a privilege. Uh, really looking forward to learning more from you and being in touch. Thanks, Ari. Thanks again. Aloha. Aloha.